Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about preventing algorithmic discrimination. Joining me is one of the experts and academic, Dr. Ignacio Cafone, Assistant Professor at McGill University's Faculty of Law. Ignacio, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. Um, so your topic is obviously a very serious and complicated topic, and you've written multiple papers about this, which we will all link in the notes to. So our, if our listeners want to do a deeper dive in them, they can go there. But let's try to break it down um, in 20 minutes or under. Sounds um, good. Can you give us just like a brief overview? We're going to focus on two of your papers and how they connect to each other and what they cover. So the papers focus on a function that the law has sometimes, which is that uh, the law in some occasions blocks demographic information to prevent people from being discriminated against. So for example, uh, people may be familiar with the fact that employers are banned by employment law to ask job candidates whether they, into, they intend to take a parental leave in the near future, whether they intend to, take a baby, to have a baby. Uh, they also prevent from asking about HIV status or other genetic information. And that is because uh, by not having that information, the law is preventing employers to discriminate against people that have the status. Now, um, once we develop a better understanding of how information flows regarding privacy, which is this blocking demographic information and discrimination works, um, this will this will allow us to apply uh, this method to other dimensions and uh, have further protection for people that would not only allow them to be uh, compensated if they're discriminated against, but would actually give them the possibility of preventing discrimination before it happens. And this is particularly useful for algorithmic discrimination, which uh, ha- which is a, a type of discrimination that is particularly challenging for the law, as the literature has shown over and over again. You mentioned all those different types of data that obviously can be misused to discriminate against people. Uh, but when it comes to the digital world and the flow of information, how would a structure like that work where if we cut off certain you know, data points like age, race, gender, things like that, it's very hard to provide certain services. I mean, obviously, uh, something that comes to mind is the Instagram ads that I get. And I love my Instagram ads. Let me be very clear. I've purchased many things off of my Instagram ads. They've informed me about many events in my area that I went to. And um, I'm a happy user of them. Do they sometimes feel creepy? Correct. But I think creepy is just us entering into a new digital age and being kind of trying to grapple with it. Whereas 10 years, 15 years ago, when caller ID was introduced, people thought caller ID was extremely creepy and they were rebelling against it. So, okay. So my question is, how do you not break the internet if you try to cut off all this like very crucial data points that are used for many, many things? Right. So you're asking a very important and difficult question. Uh, and hey, I would not want to break the internet. I love the internet. Uh, <laughs> so on the example on ads, uh, ads is not the main thing that I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about uh, the possibility of blocking certain demographics to prevent discrimination. I'm thinking more about uh, employment, housing, loans, and those types of statistics because we're normally not so concerned, at least from an anti-discrimination perspective, about ads that are targeted towards people, um, except for uh, litigation such as um, 
the Facebook housing litigation that happened recently, where where it was shown that people used Facebook ads to uh, to to discriminate, yeah, yeah, to leave out certain demographics for for renting. Which reminds me of the roommates case in the right, Ninth yeah. Circuit. Yeah, exactly. And I think there the court found that since roommates.com was helping create the structure where you could. I believe roommates.com, you could um, like filter people based on their uh, yeah, exactly. race and gender. Yeah. So that was definitely not protected under Section 230 and they were right. liable. Um, I don't know the uh, fact pattern of a Facebook as well, but I believe... It's not so different from roommates. Or, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say that. The court has to decide whether it's different from roommates or not. So Facebook basically um, had um, had, a, had a way for, for people to show certain advertisements and uh, it didn't as evidently give you the categories for choosing as roommate, Facebook removed very early on uh, the possibility of picking race when you're when you are um, when you're offering housing ads. However, there were lots of very well-known proxies. For example, you couldn't pick Latino, but you could pick likes Telemundo, and you couldn't pick LGBTQ status, but you could pick likesgaytravel.com and all oh, those. Queer were- eye. Yeah, exactly. I love queer, queer eye. eye. Don't <laughs> see, discriminate against see, me. See, proxies are not perfect. <laughs> I guess so my question is how would you do it so obviously a lot of policymakers listen to us you presented one of your papers yesterday at the privacy papers for policymakers um, conference uh, which was the 10th annual conference of a future of privacy forum and they pick uh, five winners five winning papers depends on the year yeah four sometimes um, five and uh, you were one of them so congratulations thank you um, and you presented this to a room full of members staffers uh, from Senate and the House of Representatives. So what did you tell them? Tell us, like, what did you tell them they should do? So wait, let me get back to your question, which is a very important uh, and complicated one, which is uh, how do you possibly block these demographics without blocking every single thing that correlates with them? Because one of the wonderful things about AI algorithms is that they're good at untapping all sorts of relationships between pieces of information that humans would not have guessed. So how can we possibly do that? Um, Well, the first step is differentiating between different types of proxies. Now, I divide proxies in three types. Uh, Reduction proxies, expanding proxies, and transfer proxies. You have to define it for our listeners and for me. I have no idea what you mean. Well, let me tell you. Uh, So, reduction proxies are the proxies is that when you block a certain information point but you leave a proxy available then by using that proxy instead of the information point that was blocked decision makers that were either discriminating intentionally or just unconsciously uh, following the biases that everyone has and would like to avoid um, will lead to affect a pool of people that is smaller. So you could imagine for example talking about housing um, people of Latino status uh, developers that were putting the allegedly discriminatory ads on Facebook Facebook for housing. I did not want Latinos in their in their in their in their buildings. If one were to uh, initialize first names in applications for the for that neighborhood or for that city instead of having a full first name, while before building developers could identify Latino individuals by their first name or last name, after blocking the first name, they will only be able to do so by their last name. So from the larger pool of people that they were able to discriminate before, for some of them, you effectively preempt discrimination. Well, would be the other two types of proxies. So just briefly, don't take too much of your time. Uh, the other two types of proxies are 
expanding proxies and transfer proxies. So expanding proxies are the opposite of the first, are when we block certain information from the decision maker and he or she has to make a probabilistic assessment about who in the larger group has that characteristic. And that is the example of uh, blocking willingness to take a maternity leave in the future versus the employer having to think for every single woman, oh, will she want to take a maternity leave in Does the near future? Does she look like she wants to have kids? Yeah, exactly. My first, one of my first like real jobs in Europe, I won't say in which country, but Russia, um, first question they asked me was, uh, and I was 22, they were like, are you planning on having kids? Oh my God, I'm sorry that happened. And I was like... No, I'm a child. What are you talking about? No, but also none of your business. I was, well, and the thing is, there's also an anti-discrimination statute in Russia. And I was interviewing for a position in the judiciary to be a law clerk, um, which is funny. Anyway, um, personal tech policy woman story. Um, two types of proxies. That's the first one. What's the second one? <laughs> the second type of proxy is transfer proxy, which is when... The proxy that we're forcing decision makers into by blocking the information point is neither a subset of the information point nor the reverse, but rather overlaps with it. So there's... So what what would that mean um, for our listeners and for me who are not as savvy in the privacy and algorithmic world? So that's what the the critics of the band the box policy accuse the policy of doing. So the band in the band the box policy, uh, a number of U.S. states forbid employers from having what it was called the box, which is a question in employee forms that said, "Do you have a criminal record?" Right. And a number of U.S. states uh, banned that box, which I think is a good thing. Which I would say that is a very good thing. Um, but critics of that policy uh, issued a couple of papers uh, arguing that in the states that had that discrimination against black men raised. Uh, and uh, the main argument that was made there was that uh, discrimination shifted from people that had a criminal record to people that employers thought were likely to have a criminal record. Oh. It could be every black man that I meet because I have lots of prejudices that are unwarranted, that also has a gap in their CV, I'm going to think that it's likely that they have that. So now that is clearly or very unfortunate. a woman unfortunate. of a childbearing age can have a child. Right. Something like that. So uh, those are the proxies that we really want to avoid. So the proxies that we do want to avoid are those which not only will be ineffective at protecting the group that we're trying to protect, but will worsen the situation Backfire. of other group because people have all these prejudices that we would like them not to have. But as an immigrant and yeah. a woman and a Middle Easterner, um, my question is, so, okay, let's say we stop them somehow from um, showing ads only to white people, white men, I don't know. Um, but then when you apply for that housing, they still are going to see all of your information and it can discriminate at that stage. And that's way a harder case to prove or even to know what was the reason. You know, they can say your money bracket is, you know, the financial, uh, your finances are not good enough or whatever that is. Um, and so... We don't really stop discrimination. We just curtail it in some way. So people see the ad, they apply, and then they get rejected. So what's kind of 
the I don't know what's what's the tension there. So correct, yeah. It, so it depends on the type of discrimination that you think is underlying. Um, if we think that what is happening is uh, biases that people have, uh, then there's lots of research that indicates that people reduce their own biases uh, when they have a chance to have more information about the person. So while obviously people will not stop having biases, they're more likely to have biases when someone is just a piece of paper than after meeting that person and going through the whole procedure. You need to have full-on intentional discrimination to want to maintain it throughout. And similarly, if discrimination is statistical, then acquiring more information about the individual leads decision makers to use information about the group less. So if decision makers have certain prejudices towards the group that is Latinos, then they're less likely to attribute those group prejudices to each individual after they meet them. Um, and now this doesn't mean that we can absolutely solve discrimination with this. This tool can only help us prevent some very specific the types of discrimination. Step. Yeah, exactly. And why not? It doesn't mean that uh, we would replace normal anti-discrimination law with it, of course. And it doesn't mean that usual anti-discrimination law, which looks to redress discrimination after it happens, is any less important. It's only something to avoid some small groups of people that uh, we can help ex ante to not have to go through that process. You mentioned something when we were talking before um, that there are different types of algorithmic discrimination, which makes sense. Uh, one of the main things I start any panel or interview I do about AI in general is, oh my God, AI is not one thing. There are a gazillion of different things, a gazillion of moments of artificial intelligence, of algorithms, and so on and so forth. So there are different types of algorithmic discrimination. Which are they? <laughs> so um, there are different ways of classifying it. I think it is helpful to classify it in a, in a three-part way. Um, one of them is, and this is the most obvious and the easiest to solve, when there's a bias in the process itself, because the people programming it had certain assumptions that were filtered into the way that it processed the data, because the labels were chosen in such a way that people that have a certain cultural background didn't think about others that have a different cultural background. Right. White men, I'm just going to say it. white men who write the algorithms. <laughs> I can say it. <laughs> the second, the second, the second type is a, a biased sample. So if we train the system with a certain sample that is not representative of the population, that can lead to a host of biases. So if I train my algorithm with data from people in Salt Lake City, and then I apply my algorithm in the Bronx, then people in my sample may not look exactly like people uh, where I'm applying. Just like the different system. demographics, different exactly yes. different demographics. Same when I train in one country and then apply to a different, in a different country and so on and so forth. Um, and the third one is when I have a, a pretty fair sample and I have a pretty fair process, but uh, the system is picking up inequalities that are systemic and underlying in society and that is captured by my choice of an output variable. And that is what happened, for example, with, uh, with the Compass controversy. In the Compass controversy, Compass was used... Uh, uh, for risk assessment for parole. So Compass was supposed to give a high, uh, high risk or low risk estimation of anyone uh, that was being evaluated for parole. And there was a big ProPublica uh, piece or a number of them showing that uh, it was biased against uh, black men, essentially. Now, the interesting thing about the, the Compass thing is that they claim that they were not biased. And the reason why they claim that is because um, as an output variable, they chose likelihood of rearrests simply because 
there's no existing data on likelihood of recidivism. We can only know who was rearrested. We can only know, we cannot know who committed a crime and was not arrested. And because of different systemic inequalities in society, black men get arrested more than white men or that other groups uh, controlling for the same number of crimes. So Compass was actually an accurate predictor of rearrest. It was just a biased predictor of recidivism. My question is, so how is that different from the first two types? Because isn't it the same as just the database being biased? So there, as a result, yes. But... Uh, as how that happened, no. So all of the three are ways in which the the they're all interconnected. Yeah, exactly. So so all of the all of the three are ways in which your machine learning process is biased, but the ways that that bias popped up is different. Uh, and like the, the ways- stage it popped up at, or what? Because like, let me. I'm just confused a little bit, and we can cut this out if you explain it to me. <laughs> um, like the first one is just like the algorithm itself was written by someone who didn't like check his biases at the door and had wrong labels, right? Right. The second one is the database from Salt Lake City is fed into the algorithm. And so the algorithm spews out the results that are um, uh, discriminatory because of the database that was given to him. And now the third one is that the results are spewed up so the first one, the first one is uh, a bias in the people that are making the system, as you said. The second one is a bias sample collection, and the third one is even if your sample was correctly collected, you're picking up social biases that existed. Oh, okay, got it. Well, now tell us the intel. What did you tell uh, the policymakers, the staffers on the Hill? Um, what ideas did you plant in their mind? <laughs> well, um, what, what I was trying to tell them is uh, how we can think about proxies in this way to prevent some, some instantiations of discrimination. And I think this has a number of advantages um, because although in general, discrimination is better prevented than it is remedied. So why not prevent it when we can? There are some situations in which this is particularly relevant because traditional anti-discrimination law has shortcomings. Uh, one of them, for example, is situations in which policymakers believe that there's a group worthy of protection or there's a group that is in need of protection, but current anti-discrimination law statutes don't protect them effectively. You could think, for example, about LGBTQ people in employment in half US states right now until the Supreme Court rules on it, who can be fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity. Blocking sexual orientation at a hiring stage, or at least at the first instantiations of a hiring stage, could be something desirable if their policymakers in states where Title VII doesn't cover LGBTQ status that want to give these groups protection. Right. And so you mentioned the Supreme Court, which has been kind of a guiding force in a lot of um, discrimination cases because the legislature would fail at that. So do you see this research, let's say, be used faster in a some in some litigation and then go up all the way to a Supreme Court of the United States? Or do you think the better way would be to pass uh, comprehensive legislation? So these particular suggestions are more policymakers less legislator focused than uh, than uh, than judicial power focused because they're not so much about how one should reconstruct Title Seven or anti-discrimination law statutes, but are about 
giving some more guidance on how to use this tool that legislators and policymakers already use and to what other contexts they can be expanded. Let's say your paper turns into a bill, the bill gets passed through very bipartisan, uh, very partisan um, houses uh, in Congress. What would be the constitutional challenges that people who don't like your law, they would bring? I think there's uh, one very important possible constitutional challenge that this could have, which lies in the tension in American law between disparate impact and disparate treatment. Now, disparate treatment, which is uh, what you have in the Equal Protection Clause and some statutes, is the idea that you cannot classify based on protected categories. And disparate impact is the idea that you cannot make decisions that would disadvantage protected categories. And this somehow falls, but not exactly, in the tension between the anti-subordination principle and the anti-classification principle in equal protection. Now, um, the reason why this presents a challenge, particularly for the application of this to algorithmic discrimination, is that oftentimes, and particularly in algorithmic discrimination, to prevent a disparate impact against a protected category, you need to take the category into account. So uh, there's a case called Richie V. Stefano recently, which happened actually in New Haven where we met. So in Richie V. Stefano, the challenge posed for the fire department was the following. So the fire department had this test uh, to give firefighters a promotion. And after firefighters sat for the test, it found that most of the people that would get promotion based on this test were white. Um, and the Latinos and black applicants did not score as highly. Now, uh, the fire department was afraid of being sued based on disparate impact on race. So it nullified and redid the test. Granted, this was not the smartest move. There could have been other things that could have been done, but that's what they did. Uh, and then uh, the firefighters that would have been promoted but weren't sued based on disparate treatment. And what the court said was um, that fear of being sued for disparate impact is not enough to enact disparate treatment, even if that disparate treatment is not against protected minorities. So you cannot make classifications on the basis of race because you're afraid of possible disparate impact. This has huge implications for algorithmic discrimination because oftentimes to not have a racially biased outcome, you would need algorithmic labels for race to be able to measure how race happens. If, as I suggest, you focus on data regulation and not on algorithmic regulation, this is you focus on regulating the data with which algorithms are trained rather than playing with the labels or in processing mechanisms. Or changing the algorithm. So am I understanding this? So you're basically saying, don't tell the algorithm my gender or my race. Tell the algorithm other data points that are crucial to make the decision that it's supposed to make? So I think, yes, like no. most people, that you should still tell the algorithm race and gender. You should not tell the algorithm adjust the labels race and gender in this way, because then you're opening yourself up to constitutional challenges and disparate treatment. What you, what you could do is, even though you're not blocking certain characteristics from the algorithm, you could train the algorithm with balanced data. So for example, if you're programming a hiring algorithm and uh, you give it the data of your current employees, because obviously 
if you hire them, you think they're good at their job. So the algorithm may be able to predict with that as some companies do, uh, who are good job candidates to interview. And it happens that your workforce is 75% male and 25% female. You wouldn't want to give the algorithm data from all your employees because the algorithm then will be male slanted. What you will want to do is to give the algorithms data from slightly fewer people that you have in your workforce in total, data that is gender balanced. Okay, I get that now. Um, so it's the databases basically you feed into. Exactly. Not the data points. My question is, what would be the best way to enforce that? Because obviously um, not, you know, we operate and we legislate from the point of view that not all people are good and some people can and will break the law or try to go around it, ask the IRS. So um, what would be the requirement of proportionality of a database you give to the algorithm? Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, I actually think that most discrimination that takes place, or I don't want to say that, no. Um, I actually think that much of the discrimination that takes place is actually not intentional. It's just a product of biases. And that is particularly the case for algorithmic discrimination when people not always can predict what will be the disparate impacts that the algorithm produces. So I think in this situation, guidelines can go a long way. I think if uh, cohesive guidelines are issued to the industry about things that can be done, uh, we can make some significant steps only with that. But we can of course go beyond that. And there are many ways in which in which we could think about enforcing this. One possible one, for example, would be to adjust the business necessity requirement. So um, it's unclear how the business necessity justification is applied when we're talking about algorithmic discrimination. Different people have different thoughts on that. But we could potentially evaluate whether we believe that the company put in sufficient effort to have a result that was not gender or race bias. So if someone sues based on disparate impact discrimination when there's a basis for it, so housing, uh, finance or employment. And what the employer says is, I'm so sorry, I ran this algorithm, I used current employees as an output variable, and it turned out that I mainly hired men. Then one possible question that we could that we could ask, and I think would be reasonable to us before exonerating all responsibility would be, okay, but can you show that you made any effort when you were feeding data to the algorithm to not have that gender balance. And I think that also goes back to your question of, uh, is there anything in this that would actually be aimed for judges and not only for policymakers? Um, we're juggling a lot of things in the air right now, algorithms, uh, discrimination, and privacy. We kind of haven't gone deeply into a privacy aspect of this. And uh, we're recording this in February of 2020. The California Consumer Protection Act is upon us. Uh, we'll, and we're talking about federal uh, privacy legislation that might or might not happen. Everything is up in the air. Would you see any of your policy um, proposals making into privacy law? And how would they fit in? Yes. So that's a very good point. The most obvious place to incorporate all of this would be in FTC enforcement and different statutes that focus on discrimination, such as the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. However, there is room for this in uh, omnibus privacy statutes, and particularly in omnibus privacy statutes that also focus on uh, different civil rights. 
So the first thing that that uh, that I would see this having a consequence in those statutes is that um, for let's say human discrimination, so the non-algorithmic kind, the easier kind. Um, to understand that it is misguided to think that every time we try to block a demographic under some proxy for that demographic, then uh, the blocking will be useless because even partial blinding can go a long way if it's a type of proxy that we think that is desirable to shift decision makers into. And when we're thinking rather about algorithmic discrimination, what we would have to remember is that Unlike for human beings, uh, blocking demographic information for algorithms is almost never helpful because we will always have some sort of proxy or very accurate proxy or way to go around it. And we may then not be able to identify how the discrimination is taking place. However, we can take the broad idea of data pre-processing that we had for human beings into the algorithmic sphere and think about the data that we that we're training the algorithms with. All right. Well, uh, on your privacy work, I would say that our listeners should look into all the wonderful things and some things I don't agree with you've published on privacy. <laughs> Thank you. I will uh, link actually your op-ed you've done for The Hill because I think it's a very short piece that shows like one good angle that we agree with. Um, I'm just, you know, promoting things I agree with. Um, thank you so much for a deep dive into a very complicated topic. Uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online. Tell them how to how to stalk you, basically. Oh, well, uh, you know where to stalk me. Uh, but if people want to find me, they can go to my website, which is ignaciocofone.com, uh, or my Twitter, which is ignaciocofone, or my McGill faculty website. Well, we hope you come back to the show and we talk about other things we disagree about. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Please give us a review so others can find the show. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.